Hello, and welcome to Unseen Being, our monthly show where we talk to artists, scientists, and each other about what the hell is happening inside our brains and bodies when we experience the world around us. We explore some of the intangible and overlooked experiences that contribute to the way we feel. What happens at the center of our experiences when we listen to music, walk in nature, sit on our phones, make morning coffees, zone out and get into the flow, or simply dance around the room. All of these tiny micro experiences contribute to the way we feel, act and behave. So in this podcast, we take you on a mini journey of self-discovery, exploration, and feed your curiosity about some of the most overlooked yet instrumental elements that contribute to your well-being. Consider this an audio handbook curated by artists, scientists, philosophers, and technologists, a critical guide to understanding the well-being of experience in the current age. We bring you the latest in scientific discoveries, but cut the academic jargon and help enhance your understanding of the way everyday experiences impact you, and potentially an understanding of some of the tiny changes you can make to improve the way you feel. We are Robin and Catherine, and together we're the founders of Kindest Studios, a creative science studio that explores the aesthetics of human experience. We look at the neuroscience of art's impact on well-being and human connection, and believe that connection to self, others, and the environment is fundamental to human experience. On this month's episode, we explore the topic of ritual. We think of ritual as leftover traditions from time gone by, elaborate ceremonies, lost or or pointless in our hyper-modern lives. Yet rituals are the cornerstone of connection, with the power to impact our well-being, build community, and help us navigate the world. They shape our experiences. They give it meaning. In this episode, we explore ritual and its ability to create empathy between us. We ask, is ritual really lost in the modern world? Or is it that we've just forgotten its importance? We speak to an anthropologist, Dr. Chris Cavanna, studying traditional ritual, and Eni Kuka Tomala, an artist and empathy designer, who is creating tools and rituals to bring empathy back into our lives, as we go on a journey to understand the importance, not just of elaborate collective dancing ceremonies, but the small daily ritualistic interactions we have, be it a daily cup of tea or a favorite learnt dance routine. We explore the power of ritual on our well-being and connection, even when hidden in the everyday. We focus on the importance of the empathy these rituals create, and how they can help us tackle the empathy gap we may be experiencing. Finally, we explore the creation of new social rituals, ones that bring us back together at a time when we need it more than ever. Okay, so I've always said I love ritual, but if I'm honest, I'm just a sucker for drama. As a small child, I was totally in love with the idea of of these great Mayan ceremonies with flames and chanting, the exotic picture of people in far-flung countries whirling to unseen gods, sort of terrifying initiation rites in unrecognisable languages. Now, of course, they have and they still do exist, these visually grand rituals. But ritual is not and does not have to be all sort of wicker man and midsummer. And actually, it's almost insulting to those cultures and humanity itself to think of ritual in just those terms. Yeah, rituals are everywhere. But why do we care and why are they so important to us today? I mean, 
in the world that we've been living in for the past year, all of our rituals have changed. And actually, rituals are so fundamental to how we live our day-to-day existence. And the fact that a lot of us have actually lost a lot of the rituals we used to engage in, you know, whether that was time to yourself to read a book or listen to a podcast or an audiobook on your morning commute, or just the time you took to even walk to your next destination. Those things have changed for us and we've replaced them with, with other aspects and we're all transitioning in and out of different spaces when it comes to ritual at the moment. It's a really good point. And so perhaps while we start to understand how rituals have changed, we should go back and talk about exactly what is a ritual. Right. So it feels like we're using this word more and more, but the delineation between habit, ritual, and routine can be somewhat confusing. But what separates out a ritual is that it's not rooted in a practical result. They don't have a set intended function. They're, they're really just symbolic in nature. We do them because we personally imbue them with our own symbolic meaning. So a ritual doesn't have a set function, but it does actually have a fixed sequence and a repeated pattern. They can involve gestures, words, actions, or objects. They might be prescribed by some traditions in a community, like a set ritual on a holiday, or a sacred practice that someone just carries out in their own personal connection. So for example, I have a Jewish upbringing and we're just actually in the Passover holiday at the moment. And during Passover, you have something that's called a Seder, which is, which is this big kind of grandiose dinner. But at the Seder, there's lots of rituals. You know, the order in which we do things is the same. We have a Seder plate that's arranged in a certain way with certain things, with certain symbols. It's all very set and patterned. And it actually is quite a sacred and wonderful time that you get to do these year and year again. On a personal level, I don't know if this is a ritual or more of a just me being a control freak, but I have this one mug that I drink out of every day. It's a really special mug to me. I don't know what it is about it, but it provides a sense of grounding and safety. And it's just the way I start my day and and continue with it into the evening. So it might sound silly, but it kind of means a lot to me for some reason. So rituals stem back in time and And we know they're a feature of all human societies. You know, they include worships and cults and rites of passage, atonements and purifications. But what I find really fascinating is the meaning making that ritual creates. They deepen the meaningful connection we have to ourselves, our communities and the spaces around us. Which is why, although these traditional rituals of some cultures are some of the most cherished experiences, modern day rituals, which people create for themselves, whether alone or in a group, are so important to the meaning making that is really fundamental to human experience. We'll touch on this more later, but as humans, we're constantly seeking to make sense of the world, to find patterns, to make personal meaning to experiences. And as recent research suggests, rituals are actually more rational than they appear. Why? Well, because even simple rituals can be extremely effective. People engage in rituals with the intention of achieving the set of desired outcomes, from reducing anxiety to boosting their confidence or alleviating grief to performing well in a competition, I mean, or even trying to make it rain. We see the impact of ritual at a neurological and physiological level. So if we think of the three functions of ritual being those that help with the regulation of emotions, those that help us perform better, and those that increase social connection, 
we can then measure the impact. So performing a ritual when in a state of high anxiety, we can actually see it calm our nervous system. And before a big match, this is vital to create that calm focus that you need to do well. And when we do these things together as a group, for example, a pre-match dance, the synchronicity of our movements causes a coherence in our brains and body that makes us feel more connected. Even shaking someone's hand can stimulate the release of a chemical called oxytocin that increases trust and empathy. In fact, when we perform a ritual, we can see the activity in the basal ganglia. Now that's the part of the brain that influences social, emotional and action functions. In other words, our brains are wired for ritual. But since ritual was first actually studied by the anthropologists, it's probably a good time to introduce an actual anthropologist, Dr. Christopher Vanner. Now he's a postdoctoral researcher at the Institute of Cognitive and Evolutionary Anthropology at UCL, and his research focuses on collective rituals and their impact on social identity and group-orientated behaviours. And he will explain why rituals are key to being part of any society. From the academic point of view, uh, rituals apply to a whole host of um, behaviours, and there's there's kind of a spectrum from simple like gestures for meeting people which are ritualized like shaking hands right up to you know dramatic uh, public ritual performances but it, if you are able to perform the rituals of a given culture or society with fluency the the kind of daily rituals greetings and uh, things that you do when you enter a home or so on that gives an indication that you're a member of that culture or society. So out of context, a ritual can seem bizarre, but when understood, it's overflowing with meaning. Which is why I love those personal rituals we partake in on our own. They're a beautiful expression of who we are. For example, Catherine and my morning rituals are totally different because we are totally different. But the way we set up our days means a great deal to each of us even though her morning completely boggles my mind. <laughs> okay, so my morning looks like this. I crawl out of bed after exactly three alarms that I set the night before. Then I check my Instagram, and that replaces the morning cigarette I used to have. And then I put on the stereo as loud as possible without upsetting the neighbours, and I put on a particular Foo Fighters song that someone who was really important in my life and meant an awful lot to me sent me once, and it reminds me of who I am, and it brings me confidence. So then while I howl the song across my bedroom and out the balcony to the morning sky, I armour up in my black jeans and all my silver rings. Can you hear me? Hear me screaming! Then you see, I feel ready for battle in the day, so I go downstairs and make my first strong black coffee of the day. Meanwhile, down the road, Robin is having a slightly different morning. So I wake up, grab a hot water with lemon, go back into my bed and do my morning pages, my morning journaling, and then I meditate. Once I'm done meditating, I set a little personal intention and ask for the day's guidance from my spirit peeps.
then I either go downstairs, do some yoga, try and move my body, even just for five minutes if I'm short on time. And then I sit down for the day at my computer with breakfast and coffee. I often like to get work done before the day starts for others when everything feels really calm. I have a really high energy and high speed personality. So it's really important for me to ground in the morning with as much stillness as possible for me to try and carry that with me throughout the rest of the day. And by the way, just to really impress on the polarities between us, I wear gold rings. But we have some shared kind of rituals in the morning that we do, don't we? So Catherine gets to the studio where I've usually been working for a little bit. We greet each other with a prayer pose and the greeting, Lotus. I then usually go and make another coffee, but we don't really speak to each other until after we do our daily breathing. Right. So then we do about five to six minutes of a certain breathing technique we're exploring that week and then pull a tarot card each to guide us for the day. I really like pulling these cards together because it means that I can have some empathy for Catherine if, for example, she pulls the Nine of Swords, not the most welcome card in the tarot, that I know perhaps she might not be on top form today. It allows me to put myself in her shoes a little bit. Exactly. It works as as a tool to discuss where we're at, either emotionally or just physically that day, and where we want our focus to be. So that's our personal collective ritual that we've created, but there's so many more that exist across different cultures that really unite people from, from certain regions and some quite incredible to witness. Chris shared with us some of those from the Vanuatu and Japanese regions. The prototypical example of a high arousal, uh, rarely performed ritual, something which in my research area, people have called imagistic rituals, like they create strong images in memory, is at Vanuatu, they have this tradition of land diving, where they construct these like very, very large towers, elaborate wooden towers, and then jump off using ropes which are constructed from vines that are it's kind of the I think I believe it's the origins of bungee jumping and Vanuatu in general and Melanesia as well kind of areas tend to have very dramatic ritual traditions very diverse so that's like a, a very visually striking ritual in the case of Japan it's a type of ritual called a misogi in Japan basic thing is people splash cold water on themselves and and this is a common motif you know across a whole bunch of things but this is a specifically a, a Shinto practice I lived in northern Japan in Hokkaido which gets very cold in the winter and there's this small town in northern Japan called Kikonai and it's got a misogi ritual or misogi matsuri festival that they perform where there's four young boys who volunteer and they they participate for four years right so they have to commit that they will do this for four years consecutively and what they do is in Kikonai roundabout in January the temperature goes to about minus 15 and so it's cold and it's you know snowy and all the things you would expect in winter at that time and they come out from the shrine and they have a, a kind of a piece of wood that they bite down on to stop their teeth from chattering. So they come down from this, this very beautiful shrine at the top of a hill. And then they proceed splash ice cold water on their backs for about 30, 30 minutes. And, you know, while doing various chanting and ritual sequences. And the thing that I really like or that's really impressive to me about that is that doing that once is a significant ordeal. 
But they, they go back up into the house and then they basically come down every two hours or so and repeat the, the performance. And they have to do that for like four days in a row. And at the end, they go down and uh, carry some icons down to the sea. So a very extreme uh, ritual. God, I love that. It's both incredibly scary, enlivening, and both physically and mentally challenging all at the same time. You know, something that's really interesting about ritual is that shared moment of going through an experience together. And I can imagine that those few days are certainly not easy, but being in that collective experience together does make it easier to a degree, knowing that everyone is going through the same pain. Another ritual is the Mexican tradition of the Temescal. So a Temescal is the Mexican sweat lodge. It is an enclosed hut that has water that's poured on steaming rocks. Now, everybody goes into the Temescal together. It's a group activity. And let me tell you from someone who experienced it, it's not easy at times. My knees felt like they were burning off. I was trying to get as low to the floor as possible. Being in that shared experience with everybody around me gave me that courage and that power to really kind of push through the experience that I don't think I would have been able to do on my own. It's a good point that actually not all rituals are easy. In the ritual world, there's what's called euphoric and dysphoric rituals. The euphoric ones are ones where you have an uplifting sort of frenzy and dysphoric are ones that are quite frankly quite unpleasant. There's a huge debate actually going on as to which are the more powerful ones which can connect you better. And Chris, who specialises in dysphoric rituals, explains a bit more. Yeah, so the dysphoric rituals is a like fancy title to say unpleasant and painful rituals, rituals which create like negative affect or negative emotion. And that, that the the things that are probably most familiar to people are rites of initiation, right? Where, like hazing events at university fraternities or in the military as part of sports clubs, or you know traditional societies with mystery cults is the is the other one that is often referenced. And these often involve people. People enduring like severe physical discomfort or or pain to, and and then at the end of it being induced into membership or a new level of membership of a given group. So that's a good example of a dysphoric ritual. Euphoric ritual could be, for example, something like the incredible moon dance circle in Mexico, where over 800 women come together and dance through the night for four nights in succession under a full moon. And feat of endurance, yes, but just imagine how incredible it must be to be surrounded and supported and uplifted by the, all those women. And it's these shared emotional experiences that, that bring this social cohesion, this feeling of oneness with a group, and that's vital for well-being. We are social creatures through and through. It's how we survive. And of course, it's what in those small everyday rituals that we do helps foster empathy which is so important for the world we're living in today. Right. So these bonding rituals, we do them all the time. Every time we clink a glass, share a pizza, walk arm in arm, a team cheer before a match, doing the electric slide, which I obviously do all the time. <laughs> these are all bonding. And what's so fundamental to bonding is something we call synchrony. That's when our physiology and our brainwaves sync. Our heartbeats sync in time with each other, our sweat responses begin to match, and unconsciously we feel closer emotionally. 
But studies show there's loads of ways we can sync with someone else. Every time we look someone in the eye, we bond, we sync, and we also evoke more empathy for that person. So now is probably a good time to introduce our second guest, artist Anikuka Tuamala, and her work as an empathy designer to better understand how this whole empathy thing works, and we'll learn throughout the show how important it is for modern living today. I'm Enikuka Tuamala, and I'm a Finnish empathy designer and artist based in London. My whole practice is centered around empathy, how we could transform empathy from this individual feeling or emotion, as it's often seen as, into the radical collective power that it actually is. I imagine this sort of um, beautiful circle, this cycle of of empathy and ritual in, in close connection. It all stems from this belief that I absolutely have, which is that empathy is the most radical of of human emotions. I think it was Gloria Steinem who actually said it. I really believe it's it's the foundation for all collaboration and cooperation. And, and if we're going to create some kind of positive social change, which we desperately need in so many areas of, of life um, and this kind of larger scale systems change and, and redesign, I really believe empathy is the starting point for that. It's it's really the only way we can better understand each other and and live you know, in these stronger, more equitable communities and and ultimately a more um, empathic society. I completely agree with Annie that we fundamentally need a system to change in order to evoke the state of collective empathy. It's so important in culture and society today in order to overcome these systemic challenges and barriers that are so widespread. Obviously, at the moment with the pandemic, this is even more heightened. But we've actually been living this way for quite some time. We, we live in these silos which exclude others. We, we don't say hi to our neighbor. Just the other day, someone said hi to me on the street, and I was so pleasantly surprised, but also taken aback. I think we have to think back to how grounding these rituals can be for ourselves and community. And the community isn't only with other human beings. The community can also be with nature and non-humans. When we go out in nature and we go on these walks, you know, nature exists in this kind of collective unity all the time. It's constantly giving back to one another. Everything in nature exists to feed one another in some way, shape, or form. And when we go out there and engage in nature, we can actually take a lot out of it. We can we can learn a lot about the way it works for ourselves and ground into our communities with other humans better as well. So these moments with others, these collective rituals, time, learning from nature, they all help cultivate empathy. And when we're not engaging in these as much, it may lead to something called an empathy deficit which any teaches us about. We, we talk a lot about this growing global empathy deficit, but uh, I think each of us, we have our own empathy deficit, which is based on our, our background, our experiences, our, our um, childhoods, our values. Everything all together creates our own empathy gap. And I, I wish we became more aware of those because it's only through that that we can actually learn to... Um, have more empathy in, in towards new people and in new situations. Coming back to your question around how do we, what kind of rituals we have in the everyday to to connect with each other, I think they they vary greatly. But the, the universal part of it is that they they are often formed together with other people. So I think that this is something that I'm really interested in. In how do these shared rituals form over time you know who starts them who initiates them how do they 
become a shared ritual so that it's not just one party that that upkeeps them or maintains them. So whether it's especially now thinking about how we're starting to have digital shared rituals, which perhaps we didn't have to the same extent before before the lockdown and before Corona. But, uh, you know, I, I have very good close groups of friends where we now have you know, digital rituals of, of coming together over Zoom or other platforms. And, and these are things that I think have happened very intentionally because all of a sudden I think a lot of the sort of spontaneity and, and I guess the natural sort of forming of rituals has, has been largely removed because because our lives are, are um, quite locked down at the moment. So it, it's been a very conscious um conscious choice to initiate new shared rituals. And I feel like it's, it's quite a, quite a powerful way. Actually, I feel like there's something I I'm hoping to, to keep even after Corona where everyone in a way has to agree and sign up to the ritual. So everyone is aware of it and therefore everyone um, becomes the initiator of it. So it becomes well and truly a sort of equal uh, ritual where everyone has a similar sort of input and role. This idea of rituals being equal is really important because we've got to remember that this pandemic, despite what people say, it's not exactly a leveller. The idea that we're on the same storm is not true. Well, we may be in the same storm, but we're all in very different boats. Some of us in yachts, others in a dinghy, and some are just in the water. What it has given us is a greater shared experience, and hopefully that will bond us on a more collective level. But I feel we need to remember this point and remember it well. Whilst ritual can absolutely bond us as a group, it can easily exclude people outside of the group. So we need to make sure the group is inclusive and embraces diversity. And this is something that, as any points out, we have to be very and always consciously aware of. It's interesting when thinking about how we could connect with each other, I guess, across these sort of familiar barriers or divides, whether it's connecting with people across different ages or genders or, or racial backgrounds, cultural backgrounds, socioeconomic backgrounds, different languages. Um, you know, certainly empathy is such a key in that. But even within empathy, I think this kind of in-group, out-group behavior that, that you're kind of alluding to plays a big role, you know, who is who is a part of our group, our tribe, and who who isn't. And I think you know, it obviously has such a evolutionary role or it has played such an evolutionary evolutionary role where we really needed to connect with people who are close to us in order to survive and, and prosper. Um, whereas now it's, you know, before Corona, it wasn't quite as essential. Now I wonder whether we're almost in some ways, we've gone backwards in that way where everything has become hyper-localized and, and we're very much within our local communities at the moment. But going back to your, your question about these shared rituals and whether it is possible to have rituals with, with people who are sort of outside your, your group or your tribe, um, I certainly want to believe that it is possible, but I do think it's something that requires a very conscious shared effort. Um, you know, I think the thing that distinguishes rituals from other behaviors is that rituals have this inherent emotional meaning. Um, other behaviors, other interactions don't necessarily carry that, that same kind of emotional meaning or emotional weight. Um, 
And in that sense, I guess if we're in this context trying to strive for a sort of positive shared emotional meaning um, and, and trying to do that with, with people who we might not know quite as well or who uh, might be different to us, then I do think it requires a conscious effort to, to try and do that and especially to try and do that in a way that is equitable for all and is something that everyone has access to and can be a, a part of. But the best thing, and this is really what my work focuses on, is that we can learn to broaden our empathic abilities. We can we can train our empathy muscles to actually have empathy towards people who are different from us and, and you know, in different and, and new situations. Going back to what we were talking earlier about, you know, accessibility and and this notion of of creating sort of equitable opportunities i think a key part of that is really thinking about what these rituals are who has access to them who has them you know how they're designed who they're designed for it's so so important to remember that so many of these rituals we've created are rooted in cultural origins that date back in time and unfortunately that means that many of them are outdated and need to be redesigned for more flexibility and more inclusivity One ritual which I think does this really well is five rhythms. So for those who don't know, five rhythms is a two-hour experience created by somebody called Gabrielle Roth. It's a movement experience which takes you through five sets of rhythms, flowing, staccato, chaos, lyrical, and stillness, guided by music to activate these states and usually moving collectively with others. But Let's use the word moving kind of loosely here because you can really do whatever the fuck you want in these classes. You can lay on the floor and just literally go to sleep. You can gyrate your body uncontrollably. You can move the upper knuckle on your right index finger for about an hour. (laughs) It caters to those with disabilities because there's no pressure to do something in a certain way and different mood states for different people across different weeks, moments, and seconds are totally and completely accepted. And of course, there's new rituals being created all the time, both big and small. You know, we can all relate to this right now in lockdown in both good and bad ways. You know, the way that we've spent time together has fundamentally changed, with has been really challenging, but it's also been kind of eye-opening about what we do and we do not need. You know, all of these ways that we used to engage with each other, we're actually getting a lot out of kind of walks with friends and just kind of having these personal times with people, fine. We're all sick of walking with friends. I get it. We're we're totally sick of it. But it goes to show that we still get a lot of out of experiences with people and probably have found some more meaningful connections in these more intimate encounters. Yeah, you make a really good point. But also, ritual can have a powerful effect, not just at the level of the individual or the sort of local community, but at the level of institutions. I mean, just think about it. Empathy at the level of government, for example, could and can drive political change. And this is something Annie has been demonstrating with her incredible project, Empatica L. I've um, I've been collaborating with the Finnish parliament since 2018 and working very closely with a group of members of parliament in Finland across different political parties and then working closely with, with the politicians 
I've actually, together with them, um, created this collection of empathy tools for politics, um, specifically created to be used at various points within the political decision-making process. So one of them um, creates this new system for nonverbal communication, specifically for these large committee meetings that so much of political decision-making is, is formed of. Um, and this, this tool, the, the communicators, as it's called, um, includes six colourful objects um, and a set of six is given to each, each uh, participant. And the different colours, the six different colours signal a different response. And the idea is that during discussion, during the debate within the committee, um, each member is invited to respond to what's being said um, by holding up one of these colourful objects that has a pre-subscribed meaning. There isn't much listening to each other. There isn't certainly much active listening, let alone any kind of uh, listening or building on each other's points, you know, these really rich conversations. So going back to the communicators, the idea with them is really to, to invite more engagement and to allow people to respond to what's being said without having to hold up their hand and speak. So it lowers the barrier to, to participate, but also it creates space for different kinds of interactions because if you have to wait for your time to speak, you're only going to do that for really big, important points. Whereas through the communicators, it allows you to respond in the moment. Um, and it also actually creates... Um, a culture of more openness and transparency because at the same time you're able to see how other people are reacting so for example one of the colors the orange color signals i don't understand which is something that in this context uh, never gets said um, you know no one ever dares to say they don't understand because it often you know there's a fear that it will make you vulnerable being able to hold up this orange color um, the barrier to doing that is so much lower but also creates this atmosphere where perhaps you're able to see that there are other people who also don't understand. So it also creates this moment for, for connection and, and kinship and also shared, shared emotion. It's an interesting time to be doing this kind of work, which I was you know, doing for years before the pandemic. But certainly, I think empathy has a different relevance and, and need right now. And you know, from a professional perspective, that's exciting. But on a human level, I desperately wish it wasn't so. Um, so obviously, one day, I hope that there'll be no more need for empathy tools or, or empathy training or empathy experiences, because it'll just be a natural process for us. So coming to the end of our journey into social ritual and empathy, I hope that you will take away this. Yes, there are wonderful, huge, epic rituals that create a collective effervescence and social cohesion. But there are also small, unseen shared rituals every day and all around us. Rituals that create friendship, communities, connection and empathy. And it is those that we should celebrate and create even more of because they have a powerful effect on us as individuals and a society. Any, in fact, leaves us with some really good advice on one way of creating our own empathy rituals. Little empathy rituals to, to bring into our everyday. Um, something that I've been doing as a part of my practice for years now, but I have to say has become a real lifeline during the pandemic is um, I keep an empathy diary. So this is something that I started doing about five years ago. Um, and I write down moments where I either felt empathy for someone 
um, or moments where I felt a lack of empathy. So moments where I, I feel like I, sh I should have empathized, but but didn't. Um, and what I've started doing this year is I've also started writing down moments where I felt empathy from someone else towards towards me. And that's been a really powerful, powerful thing. Um, you know, this is the in initial intention for this was for me to really better understand my own empathic abilities, but also the directions of my empathy. I, I was really fascinated by how in some moments I could empathize um, greatly, almost too much, and then in other similar moments, not at all. Um, and it kind of brought me to, to the core of, of empathy, which is that it, it fluctuates. It, it's not something that is constant or consistent. It changes throughout the day, changes throughout our lives, depending on the context, depending on our mood, depending on our stress level. Um, so the empathy diary has really helped me better understand um, my own sort of directions of empathy, but also in, in so many ways, remind myself of also the empathy that I often feel from other people. So, so this is just something I, I wanted to share and, and invite others to perhaps keep, keep their own empathy diaries. Um, and I guess what I would also say is thinking about sort of little rituals to bring empathy into our lives. Um, I would really encourage us to think about what we're currently experiencing and, and going through from the perspective of others. So whether that's friends or family members, all who whom will be in very different situations and positions, or whether it is strangers that we might not know, neighbors, people living on your street, co-workers, or even more broadly, as we're seeing so many key workers, um, you know, carrying so much of the weight of the pandemic. So I would, I would really encourage initially these little thought exercises of, of trying to actually imagine um, everyday life from these other perspectives. I think Annie makes a really good point. And I, I love that ritual because it's really important for us to kind of reflect on things for our day. And I'm sure everybody has different kind of evening or bedtime rituals. I certainly need to get better at some better bedtime rituals for myself, to be honest with you. So I might take up some of Annie's advice and start reflecting more on both the empathy I feel and also give to others. I couldn't agree more. Those moments of ritual whether with ourselves or shared connections, are so important. They create empathy and they have a huge impact on our well-being. They create the meaning and understanding that we need to go forward together as a society. Just the very act of creating meaning out of a simple action shared with someone to me is so beautiful. Connection is everything. Because as we often say in The Kinder Studio, life is a lot. Living is a lot. It really is. A lot, good and bad. But we get through it by being together. It's what Rilke so beautifully put. And so I'll end on his words, which was simply this. Truly being here is so much. Because everything here apparently needs us. This fleeting world, which in some strange way keeps calling to us. Us, the most fleeting of all. Once for each thing. Just once, no more. And we too, just once, and never again. But to have been this once, completely, even if only once, to have been one with the earth, seems beyond undoing. La 
heard there was a secret chord that David played and it pleased the Lord. But you don't really care for music, do you? Well, it goes like this: the fourth, the fifth, the minor fall, and the major lift. The baffled king composing. Thanks for listening to the show today. We are Kind Studios and this has been Unseen Being.